0: We are getting to the end of the messages that are foundational to the book of Revelation. When we enter chapter 6, Lord willing, next week on Sunday night, we will begin to read a lot of the uh, wild and amazing images that you've come to know and expect from the book of Revelation. Things start to really uh, crank up a notch in terms of vivid imagery of disaster and doom. Uh, So we're on the cusp of that, and we're in the final part of chapter 5. We're going to look at the second half of this chapter as the final information is given to us concerning the book of Revelation, the things that John and the readers need to know uh, before these images unfold. Remember in Revelation 5, we see the one who sits on the throne holding a scroll in his right hand that has seven seals on it. A cry has gone throughout all of creation, who is worthy to open the scroll and to reveal its contents and break the seals. And no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is able to do that. And so we see the Apostle John beginning to weep over that recognition that no created being has any ability or any right, nor is worthy to approach the throne of God to take the scroll or to open the seals. Then we see one of the 24 elders turning to John and telling him not to be upset, to weep, do not weep, because essentially, to phrase it down, the Messiah is here, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He is able to open the scroll. And in verse 6, we have something quite surprising, that as John turns in likely expectation to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, this victorious Messiah, this conquering Messiah. Instead, he sees a lamb. And it is a lamb that has been slain, though it is standing. And that's where we pick up with our study tonight, is now what does this lamb look like, and what is this lamb doing? So notice verse 6 of Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So here's our final scene before the scroll is open and the contents begin to be revealed and the characteristics of the Lamb are first described. It is not a normal looking lamb. This should not necessarily see this all cute cuddly little lamb. We've got some interesting aspects. First it appears to be slain which already is a difficult image and we observed last week is resembling how the lamb would conquer. It would conquer through his death. Rather than seeing this lion in victory of might and strength and power we see a lamb who is slain and that would be the means of his victory is through his death. However, notice the characteristics that are on the lamb. We see first that he has seven horns, which is obviously unusual for a lamb to have. And one of the things that we should have already observed and we'll remind ourselves and we'll see again and again in the book of Revelation is that seven repeatedly symbolizes perfection and completeness. I think that's why seven churches of Asia are pictured. Why there are seven seals, and why there are seven trumpets, and why there are seven golden bowls. There are numbers of sevens throughout the book of Revelation. And seven represents that perfection. And so you put that in your mind of, okay, we have perfection on display, and a horn always represents power and strength. Always a representation of that. We won't turn to Daniel 7, but you can look over there when you read about these beasts who rise up. They have all of these horns. Well, the more horns you have, the more powerful it sounds. And here's a picture from the animal world. of have seen a large beast that would have horns It symbolizes strength. It symbolizes power. So this makes a a very um, unusual picture before us because you have a lamb that is slain and yet it is a picture of perfect power even though he's slain and so that's a very curious combination to put together that well he seems to be broken and is slaughtered and yet on the other hand you see him with might and power and so I think that's depicting for us that this is not a weak lamb. Just because the lamb is slain, just because the lamb has died, has sacrificed itself on behalf of the people, that does not mean this lamb is powerless. That does not mean this lamb does not have any strength at all. It is a picture then of a self-sacrificing lamb. This lamb had full power and full authority and full might. And it allowed itself to be slain on behalf of the people. And that's where the rest of that text goes. When we read through the worthiness of the lamb, why is it worthy? Because it was slain. It is describing how the lamb was willing to be sacrificed and the benefits that is derived to the people because he did that. And so it's a picture that this lamb sacrificed himself. It is not that the lamb was weak or incapable or lacked power. He had all power, perfect power, but was sacrificed for the people. The other seven that sits in verse 6 is that it has seven eyes. And in general, that's not too hard to grasp in having a seven, again, using completeness and perfection. And eyes have typically symbolized seeing and knowing and understanding the things that are going on. And so the simple point would just simply be that God is aware, that God sees what is going on. He's aware of the conditions on the earth, He's aware of what is happening. To his saints, he is aware of the things that are transpiring and the things that are about to happen. And then you'll notice the explanation goes even further with it in verse 6 the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, if you remember, I have put off that picture two times now, and this will be the third time, but this time I'm going to now deal with that phrase. Remember in chapter 1, we saw the picture of God the Father sits on the throne, and to the seven spirits, of from the seven spirits of God, and from Christ, that's that pictured there in chapter 1. In chapter 4 we saw the seven spirits described again. And so I kept holding it off because here is the complete imagery and the complete description. It is the seven spirits of God who sent out to all the earth. If you'll keep your finger in Revelation, and let's go back to Zechariah, because that's where this image comes from. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Now, a little bit of context to help ease what's going on in the vision in Zechariah 4. You remember why Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying? they are on the scene to kind of kick the people along to tell them you need to rebuild the temple. You have built your houses and you're living in luxury and yet God's house remains desolate. You need to rebuild. And remember the reason why they had stopped rebuilding under Zerubbabel's leadership is that the politics of it all, the leaders of the land had gotten Persia to tell them to stop. And so they were told they could not rebuild the temple. Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying, coming along and telling the people, no, you need to rebuild. So that's really the context of what's going on in Zechariah. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 2, you have the beginning of that imagery. This angel says to Zechariah, and he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all with gold and with with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with the seven lips and on each of the lamps that are on top of it and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right bowl and the other on the left. I'll just pause there for a minute to tell you We'll come back here to these olive trees when we get to Revelation 11. This, this uh, chapter is used heavily in the book of Revelation. We're only going to pull out the seven lamps at this moment, which represent the seven eyes. Which Now you have the, verse 4 and verse 5. The angel is asking uh, Zechariah if he knows what these things mean. Verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, "'Nor by power, but by my Spirit,' says the Lord of hosts." Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand And observable. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And so verse 10 is is the key, and that's where the picture comes from, is notice the similar language of the seven being the eyes of the Lord going throughout all the earth. Here we have Zechariah saying those very things. So what I want us to do is quickly observe, well, what was being told to Zechariah? And then we can take that information and put it into Revelation and go, okay, so that's what this means for the Lamb to be pictured with Uh, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So in chapter 4, you'll notice what is being told to Zerubbabel. Verse 6 is probably the key here. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel is this. It's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by strength and power. How is the temple of the Lord going to be built? The point is that God is going to do it. He says, by my spirit, Zerubbabel and and those who were there at that time, it's not going to be about you in some sort of physical match against the Persian leaders or your opposition here in the land. God's purpose and plan is that this temple will and must be built. It will be done. God has declared it. And so it is not up to you by your own physical choice or disposition that this is going to be done. God is going to have this thing done. And so that is what is being pictured. And that's what verse, verse 7 is great. Uh, "'Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubul you're nothing.'" Zerubbabel is going to get it done. Uh, Whatever obstacle stands before you, picture Great Mountain before Zerubbabel, whatever that obstacle is, it's going to be leveled because this is going to get done. God has said this temple is going to be built. And so this chapter in a vision is encouragement to the people to tell them, God's word is going to be done. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. This temple is going to be rebuilt. God is with you. It's going to be done. And so that is what is being pictured, I believe, when he concludes in verse 10 with the seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. What is he telling them? I believe God's telling them, I see what's happening. I know the opposition. I know what you're going through. I have observed all that. I know that Persia has stood against you. I know the opposition in the land. I'm not ignorant of those things. I know your obstacles. Those obstacles will be made nothing, and you will rebuild. And I think that's how those two images come together. God's purposes and plans will be accomplished by His power. And don't think it cannot happen because God sees all that's going on on the earth. And I think that's what's very useful about Revelation and also here in Zechariah 4 verse 10, when you have the phrase, which ranges through the whole earth. Well, what's the idea? God sees it all. God knows what is happening. He's not unaware. He knows what's taking place for the people. Okay? Now let's go back to Revelation 5 and let's drop that into what's going on. We haven't finished the seven churches of Asia at this point, but I think we've studied enough of the seven churches of Asia to get a grasp of what's happening to the Christians. In nearly every letter, what is being told to them? I know your current tribulation and suffering... And to some of them, it's only going to get worse. It's going to become more difficult. Remain faithful unto death. Hold on and conquer and overcome. You are suffering. You are going through tribulation. You are being persecuted because of your faith in Christ. Stand firm. Hold fast. And so we realize what is now transpiring here in chapter 5 with this picture about Christ. He sees what is going on. He is aware of their condition. He knows what's happening. He's not unaware of their suffering. He's not unaware of their persecution. He knows what is going on. But what's the point when you use this language of the seven eyes being the seven spirits of God? Not only does He perfectly see, but that God's plans are not going to be thwarted. That's what the meaning of Zechariah was. Is that not by might, not by power, that by God's Spirit, this is going to be done. And so what this is bringing all together is here is the lion who is pictured as a lamb. The lamb was slain, and yet it is pictured with power. This is a confusing image. How can this be? How can you have a king who has been killed and he's going to reign? And I think that's what this is about, is that the lamb is going to conquer. Do not worry. Yes, I know you're suffering. Yes, I know there is tribulation now and to come. I know your persecution that is against you. But do not think that God does not see. Do not think that God does not understand. And what have we seen in chapter four and now also here in chapter five? God is sitting on the throne. He is ruling and here with the lamb, and he's going to conquer. He's going to conquer the enemies that the Christians are facing. And that's what the first thing we're going to encounter as we come into chapter 6. What are we going to see? Saints under the altar crying out. How long? They're dealing with suffering. They've been killed for the cause of Christ. You can imagine they're saying, this doesn't make any sense. We're dying for the cause of Christ. Is Christ on the throne? Is He ruling? Most certainly He is. Christ is going to conquer. He most certainly is ruling. He sees your suffering. He is fully aware of everything that is going on on the earth. He knows what you are going through. He is completely aware of it. And He is ruling. And He will be victorious. His plans will not be thwarted because it will not be by human might or by human strength. But by God's will, by God's Spirit, what He has said, it will come to pass. So I think that's what's bound up in this message of saying that here is a slain lamb and yet he has seven horns with all this power. He has seven eyes. He sees all that is going on. He is ruling. He will conquer. And so it is a picture of hope to the Christians at that time, especially hold fast, overcome, do not give up. So you can see how that imagery would work well after the seven churches of Asia. After being told... Keep doing what you need to do to the one who conquers, who overcomes. I will give, and the various pictures of rewards that would be given. And now here is the scene of yes, God's ruling, yes, Christ has authority. And that's what we see now as we move on in verse seven. What a powerful image! And he went and took the scroll from the right hand, who was who was seated on the throne. Anybody else have the right? or the authority, or the worthiness, or to put it in our language, the guts, to go up to the one who sits on the throne and take the scroll. No creative being does. Absolutely not. The only one who is worthy, who has power and authority to do such, is the Lamb, is Christ. So He is pictured. He goes and He takes the scroll. In verse 8, when that happens, what happens? Everybody bows down again. There's what we saw in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, we have the one seated on the throne. What are the four living creatures doing? Calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What are the 24 elders doing? They are coming off of their thrones. They are falling down before the throne. They are casting their crowns, worshiping God and saying He is worthy. Notice the same thing is happening here in verse 8. As we see that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. The implication is that which was being given to God is also being given to the Lamb. And we'll notice in verse 9 the worthiness that's described. He's worthy. he is praised. And so the simple picture that is being drawn to us is that the Lamb is divine. He's receiving all of these accolades and receiving the falling down and receiving the worship that the one who sits on the throne receives. Well, who is worthy of that? Well, obviously only God, but yet it's given to the Lamb. The Lamb is God. The Lamb is divine. He is certainly Jesus the Christ, and He is worthy of worship. One of the things that is also interesting in verse, 20, in verse 8 Notice the characteristic that's described of the 24 elders. Something very curious about them. Each of them hold a harp. That's, I guess that's where the angel pictures come from. But these 24 elders are not angels. They're spiritual beings. They're not angels. They're, they're described differently. And we already have talked about that when we studied chapter 4. But notice they're holding a harp. And more importantly... They're holding golden bowls full of incense. And notice we are told what that represents in verse 8, which are the prayers of the saints. That's not the only time in the Scriptures that image is used. It's used in Psalm 141. We see a picture time that the offering of incense and the offering of sacrifices is pictured as the prayers of the people going up before God. It's been a while since we were in the book of Luke. but Do you remember when Zechariah is in the temple? Remember we talked about in Luke 1 that it was the lucky lot to fall upon that priest who one time in his life was allowed to go in and offer incense in the temple before God. Do you remember what the people are doing outside when that incense is being offered up? Praying outside the temple. The offering of incense is tied together with the prayers of the saints even before we come to this text. And so here it is stated explicitly. These are the prayers of the saints. It is a picture of the words of God's people. Entering into the throne room of God and God hearing the prayers that they are being lifted and carried up by the 24 elders and presented before God who has just been pictured as seeing all and knowing all the things that transpire on the earth. And I think it's worth taking just a minute to soak on that thought for a minute because I think all of us from time to time wonder if our prayers ever get higher than the ceiling. You ever feel like you're only talking to yourself? You only feel like this is kind of some sort of mental exercise for my own goodness, but does God really hear? Does God really hear the words that I'm saying? And I think this verse in verse 8 is really a great reminder for us that He definitely does. He absolutely hears the prayers of the saints. Here is a visual representation of it, that the prayers of the people of God go into the very throne room of God and that God hears the words of those who are His. And that is a useful reminder for us when sometimes we may begin to wonder if our prayer is of any value, if we think that it's just a waste of time, that it's not worthy of uh, our own time or schedule. God hears the prayers of the saints. He sees all that is going on. And here is the first picture we receive of the prayers of the people of God entering before the throne room. That brings us to verse 9. And we're told that... They are singing, these 24 elders, they are singing a new song. Now, we have a new song in our songbook that is very difficult to sing. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, it doesn't appear that theirs was so challenging as with the one who wrote our new song. I think the question that needs to be asked is why is it called a new song? What is exactly behind that? Because That's not foreign to the Scriptures either. There's a symbolism when calling something a new song. Most notably, though, there are other places in the Old Testament, I think most important is over in Isaiah 42. Once again, if you don't mind, put your hand in Revelation 5 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 42. And we won't read the whole thing, but I just want you to observe a couple of things about what the new song looks like. Isaiah 42 and verse 10, notice the statement, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth. And so there is this command being given, I want you to sing this new song, this praise that needs to be given. Now notice what that entails. Verse 12, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Now watch verse 14. For a long time I have held my peace, I have kept still and restrained myself. And now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp out in pants. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. And just keep skating your eyes down. I won't read the rest of it, but notice it is pictures of judgment And pictures of change. It is doom prescribed, but then also a change of state, like turning darkness into light and rough places into level ground. An utter change is happening. So what you see going on in Isaiah is that when a new song is proclaimed, it is an expression of praise, of God being victorious over His enemies, that leads to a dramatic change in the events that are being spoken of. And I think that is the idea here, especially when you bring in verse 14, is the picture of God was for a time restrained. There was for a time He was doing nothing. He was standing on the sidelines and allowing the events that were happening to Israel in the days of Isaiah to transpire against the people, but now no more. Now judgment is going to come. If you remember the breakdown real quick of Isaiah. First 39 chapters, doom, gloom, going to be terrible, awful, you're going to Babylon, you're going to be destroyed. In chapter 40, that all changes, right? We have the song of comfort, things are going to be different. What's chapter 42 saying? You're going to be judged. God stood on the sidelines and allowed that judgment to happen, but now God is going to act. That's what, what verse 15 is doing. Now He's laying waste. Now He's acting. Now He's bringing judgment. Bring that picture into verse 9. Now, this is what is being described that they're singing a new song. It's not suggesting that the angels or the 24 elders all got together one day and said, you know, we're bored with the songs that we have. We need to come up with a new song. The new song has a reference to something in the Old Testament. When a new song is sung, it is praising God because God is about to act in judgment. Something is going to be done. That's what chapter 6 is going to show us. Something's about to happen. God now is going to act. He was restrained in the past. And Revelation is going to lay that out. The people of God are suffering and they're being persecuted and they're going through tribulation, but God now is going to act. Something's about to change. And so the new song is leading us into that. As they sing a new song, and what are they saying? Verse 9 They say the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And they note a number of reasons why. Because of His death is the first thing that is pointed out. Verse 9, For you were slain. But it's not just simply that Christ died. It's much more than that. It is the impact of what Christ did through His death. Notice what is described in verse 9. By your blood you ransomed a people for God. We don't use that word ransom an awful lot, but it's a pretty simple word of something being bought or acquired for a price. Something's being purchased here. And this was simply being told to us is that Christ paid for us through His blood. By His death, by the lamb being slain, He bought us. He owns us. He purchased us. The price was His blood. I put this one on the screen for you because that's what's pictured for us in Colossians chapter 2, uh, a study that I intend for us to start in a few weeks. Uh, I think the beginning of November we're going to do the first two chapters of Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, with its legal demands, this he set aside and nailed it to the cross. Stop right there. What did the cross do? First, it deals with sins, and that's what's being pictured. There's a ransoming that goes on here that we are being purchased for God, that Christ has dealt with our sins so that we can be God's people. But that's not all. What's the rest in what happened in the cross? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Notice the picture of victory that is tied as well. The conquering that is going on. That's the thrust of Revelation 5. He died, but He rules. And look at what that has done. It has put the enemies to open shame. It has driven them down and they are now subjected. And so that's the first picture given to us is that you've ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's an important statement. Everybody has been ransomed. Not just the Jews. Jews and Gentiles, everybody has been purchased by Christ to be people for God. But then notice the rest in verse 10. And notice what that's made us. It's made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see in all of those images the conquest picture? He's made a kingdom. He has his kingdom, and we are part of that kingdom. He now rules with authority. And we are joined with them in that. In fact, that final phrase, and we rule on the earth. A picture of, of power that is given to those who are the people of God. And they rule with Him. And then the other great picture, priests access to God we have access so what is being described is look at what Christ has done he ransomed the people he bought his people so that we can be the people of God no longer lost in our sins we can be joined to him and not only are we no longer lost in our sins and no longer is it not only that we have a relationship with God We are heirs of God because we are in a kingdom. We are in His kingdom. And that means we have rule and authority as we are joined with Christ. And not only that, we have access directly to the Father as priests that stand before God. And so the Lamb is being praised because look at what He has done. His death... And His rule is not about what He did for Himself. It's about look at what He has done for His people. Look at what has been given to them. Look at the blessings that they have obtained because Christ died. And notice verse 12 are the very words. And notice it is of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels and visualize it in your own head Verse 12, can you imagine myriads and myriads, a countless number of spiritual beings saying in a loud voice these words? Not one person with a loud voice, thousands upon thousands of spiritual beings, these angels, proclaiming all together these words. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy of it. All of the spiritual beings are shouting this. Worthy is the Lamb. And look at what He is worthy to receive. Is there anything left out of that? Power. Wealth. Wisdom. Wisdom. Might, honor, glory. And notice, it is all the creation that are praising the Lamb and the One who sits on the throne in that next verse. Everybody is praising. Everybody is shouting out that Christ is worthy of our praise. That He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy because of what He has done, because He was slain and what His death did for the world and how we could then be the privileged people of God because of His death. And that's why the four living creatures say, Amen. Look at that. Let it be so. He is worthy of that. And what do the 24 elders do? They fall down again. And they're worshiping the Lamb because of who He is and because of what He's done. And that's the picture as the doors seem to close in the throne room scene and our attention is turned away after this to the things that are in the scroll. But we're left with such a powerful image of the Lamb, what He's done for all the earth. I just want to leave you with two thoughts then from this lesson one I hope that we will see what Christ has done for us this is a great summary of what the lamb has done for each and every one of us to give up his life to allow us to be in a relationship with God that was the only way That was the only way to be able to bring us back into a relationship with God because we were enslaved in our sins and we were utterly lost because of what we had done. Christ purchases us. He ransoms us. He buys us. And we become His because of His death. His blood is the price paid to get us out of our debts and to make us the people of God. That in and of itself, we, we, I think we'd all be happy to say, let me be a slave in God's rule because He bought us and I am just completely indebted to Him. And yet the rest of the picture is amazing that He tells us, no, you're in the kingdom. You're not just some footstool in this scenario. You're in the kingdom of God. You are with God. You are children of God. You are reigning with God. And you have direct access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you can go directly to Him and speak to Him. And not only that, you're ruling now with Him, ruling with Christ on the earth. The picture that Ephesians and Colossians also describes. And so the first thing is, see what Christ has done The second point is, I think when we truly appreciate what Christ has done, when we truly see where we stand because of His death, then we will worship Christ because He is worthy. We will most certainly honor Him. And the most important way that we honor Christ is living lives that reflect praise and worship of Him living lives that constantly are grateful to Him, that are serving Him, that are showing that He is the one who has done all things for us, who has died for our sins, and given us the privilege to be His children, the privilege of being in His kingdom, though undeserving we are. And that's why all of these spiritual beings... Myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands of the voices of angels, worthy is the Lamb. And may that always be on our tongues and may our lives always reflect how worthy the Lamb is of our service and our love and our giving. Pull your psalm books out. We'll sing invitations.